Bibles with you tonight, please turn to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes for the last time. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, at least the last time for the next, you know, maybe 20 years or so. We'll loop back around. We'll see. But how many of you, just out of curiosity, have ever seen a movie called No Country for Old Men? Just, just, a, just a few of you. It's, it's also a book. I, I don't know that I can recommend the movie. It's an excellent film. It's just a rough watch. But it's a movie basically about a, a collector and enforcer for a Mexican drug cartel in the early 80s who um, is sent to collect, if you will, the money that was lost in the beginning of the movie in a drug deal. And all throughout this movie, uh, maybe the best, I, I read somewhere that several... A psychiatrist, psychologist has watched this film to analyze the character because uh, this character, Anton Chigurh is his name, he plays like a psychopath. And they said of all the portrayals of that type of person in a film ever in the history of movies, this was the best, most accurate one. Uh, he plays an excellent role, but he's terrifying. And he just kills people and kills people throughout the movie, trying to recover this money with no remorse whatsoever. Such a cold, calculated killer. And then in the end... When everything finally comes to its head, he completely gets away with it. And that's it. <laughs> that's how it ends. And the book on which the movie is based, again, written by an author named Cormac McCarthy, really, even though the movie is so dark, it does an excellent job of locating or reiterating for us this longing that we all have for justice to actually finally be served. We all want Justice, and, and we look at something like that, whether it's in movies, which is frustrating, but unfortunately we see it so often in real life. Moments, situations, circumstances, crimes, horrible things that cry out for justice. We're left wondering so often in our lives, no, 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 this can't be the way it ends. Ecclesiastes will actually end tonight by taking us back to the finality of God's judgment. Normally, we picture God's judgment in such harsh and angry terms, and so there's nothing positive about it for us as we think through it. But it would do us well to remember tonight that if there's judgment that's coming, if all is going to be made right, then there is hope, not just fire and brimstone. This is the way Solomon will use it tonight. He finally comes to the end of the matter at hand. He gives us the conclusion of his search for meaning under the sun. What has he learned by giving his heart to trying to understand the world? After the tornado tore through Joplin, Missouri several years ago, I'm sure you remember that, the letters on the high school in town, the only high school, uh, had been, of course, mostly blown off so that it read Op High School, O.P. High School. Then over the course of the first few days in the midst of the wreckage, someone had added an H and an E to the letters on it so that it read Hope High School. And I read, I'm, I'm relying very heavily tonight on Zach Eswine's understanding of this last section. I, I thought it was excellent. He talks about how for 12 chapters, basically, the preacher has tried to get us to stand in front of that high school in Joplin, Missouri, and look at the wreckage Look at the death all around us to, quote, open our eyes without any blinders on and see the delights and disquiets that we and our neighbors actually have to endure under the sun. He doesn't want us to live in denial. He wants us to resist using trite and simplistic responses to the horrific wreckage around us of what was once Eden. 
so that without naivety, simplicity, folly, cruelty, or sentimentalism, we can add an H and an E to our lives and to those of our neighbors under the sun. Redeemed sinners should not be arrogant about judgment. We deserve it too. And I was caught something on, on Facebook yesterday. Is it Uncle Phil, the guy from Duck Dynasty? Is that the one with the beard that talks so much? Talking about how these left-leaning liberals were really going to get it. That judgment was coming for them. And that kind of rhetoric makes it sound like, as Christians, we don't have to be afraid of judgment because we're the good people. Beloved, the only reason that we also don't need to stand in fear of God's judgment is because of Jesus, not because of ourselves, not because by our own effort we've been able to live a life that's good enough to avoid God's judgment. That's not how God's judgment is avoided. And we shouldn't talk in a way that even implies that's how it's avoided. Ecclesiastes and the message in it is as much for us as it is for our unbelieving neighbors. And as we, as those who live by faith in God, he wants us to learn that we might, how we might also hate life under the sun as we too experience the meaninglessness of life under the sun along with our neighbors. There's a godly divine way to hate life under the sun. But he isn't a cynic. He's not talking about hating it as cynics or as nihilists. Solomon isn't a hedonist. He's not a religious escapist. Human purpose is not lost because it's meaningless under the sun. God is not dead. Yes, death comes for us all. But as one commentator says, it cannot destroy ordinary joys provided by God among the goodness of things that refuse to quit. So to bring the book he wrote from within the broken remains of God's creation to a close, Solomon will look the world right in the eyes in verse 13 and say, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. The word duty actually isn't in the original Hebrew. It just says this is the whole of man. So he takes us back to judgment tonight. Judgment brings up images of a courtroom, doesn't it? What happens in a courtroom? A court hears all the testimony regarding the matter at hand. All kinds of different voices speak. The judge, sometimes a jury, listens and looks at all the testimonies and circumstances and facts and eventually renders a verdict. All has been heard. The matter has come to an end and the time has come. Now we must draw our own conclusions. The preacher let us hear all these voices of human experience under the sun and now the end of the message has come. What is the lesson, if we can simplify it that way, to take from this great book that even the vain, brief lives under the sun possess a God-saturated purpose? That wherever we are, whatever our hand finds to do, believing and following this God is our whole purpose in life. And our God has the last word under the sun. And beloved, his word is good. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you once more for your word. This is the word by which you create your people and raise them from the dead to be your children. This is the word that sustains your people and the promise of which will carry us home to the end, enabling us to endure by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
And so God, awaken us to it tonight. Let these bones live as your word goes out, if you will fill me with your spirit and guide my tongue. And so, Lord, I ask that you would not just help me speak, but help everyone listen and hear your word well. I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look here at verse 9 in chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here at the end, the book shifts, if you notice that, from first-person language back to the third person. In these last verses, it goes from things like, I saw, I applied my heart, etc., to the preacher. The preacher also taught. So either a later editor added this epilogue after Solomon's death, maybe, or, I, in, in my opinion, that's all it is, Solomon is switching back to the third person as commentary on the book that he's written. Think of this, think of Ecclesiastes like a movie, the screen has gone black, and this paragraph comes up that sums up the story or brings it to a close. So besides being wise himself in verse 9, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. That's sort of a commentary on Solomon's whole life. 1 Kings 4, 32-34 remind us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And here in verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So Solomon's days were spent basically concerned with pursuing words of delight under the sun. He wrote words of truth. He did not keep his wisdom to himself. He weighed out what he discovered. He tried to determine whether or not it was truly wise. Solomon wanted to know the truth, and he wanted his people to know the truth, the whole truth. That's why Ecclesiastes is so important, right? What he had discovered and what he delivers to us here is wisdom that's been endowed to him by God through the process of searching, examining, weighing, studying, and arranging. It follows then that the wisdom that comes in verse 11 is expressed in the form of a proverb, right? The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The words of the wise, words like Solomon had discovered and delivered to his people, were like goads. Goads were ancient cattle prods, basically. A shepherd would uh, poke an animal with him to keep them moving or going in the direction he wanted, and divine wisdom is like this. Divine wisdom is like a goad at times. The truth can hurt. The truth corrects. What is wise and true is often also painful to learn, to accept, to understand. Ecclesiastes is that kind of truth. That kind of truth rests in God's inspired scriptures. I read a story about a, a parable 
about a young boy whose father had died years ago, but an old friend of his dad comes to town and he and the boy spend the whole day together. Teen hears all these stories about his dad's life and his personality. Later that night when the friend has gone home, his mom asks him if he had a good time with his friend. And he said, yes and no. She said, what do you mean? He said, well, it was great to see dad's friend. Sometimes when he talked and when he told stories about dad, it's, it's like I could see my dad in his words. That really meant a lot. And his mom said, but you're still upset about something. He said, yeah. He said, it still wasn't the same as seeing dad himself. Someone might ask us, do you enjoy reading Ecclesiastes? Well, yes and no. Right? Yes and no. It, it, it's been wonderful for us. God wanted us to hear this wisdom. Because for one thing, it shows us how God relates to us or, or maybe how we relate to God here under the sun. We've learned better ways to think through things ourselves, how to better interpret our lives in the fear of God. We've learned that we have common ground to have conversations with our unbelieving neighbors and friends, but the preacher isn't God. Right? It, it, knowing his truth is not the same as beholding God face to face. And Solomon didn't live up to the wisdom he had learned and taught for most of his life. First Kings eleven six. So our hope as we walk away is not going to be found in trying to be wise like Solomon. We want that wisdom, but we don't want it to stop with Solomon. Solomon isn't our father. Right? He reminds us of him. He tells us of him. But there are still oppressors and the oppressed under the sun in this world. Our loved ones are still going to die despite this truth. Justice is still going to be delayed often. There's no one alive who isn't a sinner. But the collected sayings of Solomon are also like nails firmly fixed. Think, think of tent pegs maybe pounded deeply into the ground so that nothing moves when the wind blows. These words provide us with stability. They help us focus because the point of all of this wasn't just to pontificate. The point is about to be revealed because these words that are like goads and like nails have been given by one shepherd. In verse 11, Philip Riken writes that to read Ecclesiastes is to hear our shepherd's voice. Hear the voice of Jesus even in the words of Ecclesiastes. These are not only the collected musings of a very wise man, the wisest that ever existed other than Jesus, words about our world and what it's like to live in it. These are words that were inspired in the heart of Solomon as he searched by our Lord himself. Often they're like goads. They will be because we naturally resist the truth. We, we don't want to conform to it, not joyfully, not willfully. And so often it's hard for us, again, to accept the truth. But these words are also like nails firmly fixed because through such word words, God makes us stand firm and stand stable. And so these things were not given to us to throw us off. These words are given to us to make us stand. Ecclesiastes takes us into some ambiguity as a means of helping us stand. God doesn't want his people to approach the world with trite you know, simplistic conclusions. It isn't a simplistic world. Don't 
Nothing wrong with having magnets on our refrigerators and little sayings that we remember to help us. I'm not demeaning that. I'm saying don't ever forget, though, the world is often rarely, in fact, rarely so simplistic. Saying that God works in mysterious ways doesn't really help anything. Right? And, and it's true. It's true. It just isn't, it, 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 it doesn't tell the truth. It, it pushes us to find the truth. These sayings that we might live by. As we look out into the world, we have to remember that God creates His people by His Word, but He also keeps them by that same Word, the Word that gives life. And so, again, as, as we look out into the world, as we, the world that we live in, we, we consider all the wants, the desires that we have, the pastures, the paths, the valley of death's shadow. We engage these things by contemplating on the fact in verse 11 that it is the Lord who is our shepherd. That's what Solomon would have us take away from these words. And that's why he writes again, this shepherd is the Lord, the want provider, the rest giver, the pastor and path leader, and the soul restorer. He is the valley walker, the with me overcomer, the comforter, the table preparer, the head anointer, the cup filler, the goodness and mercy sender, the house dweller, and the forever, all the days of my life, securer in Psalm 23. That's what the end of Ecclesiastes does. It takes you to a text like Psalm 23 and lets you read it anew in light of the difficulty of living under the sun in general, not just when times are uniquely difficult. We're always in search of a shepherd here, aren't we? Of someone to guide us and provide us and care for us. And under the sun, we can't find one that can truly tend us or that truly wants to and do all that it would take to care for us. But God says that He Himself will shepherd us. In Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16, God promises that on a day of clouds and thick darkness under the sun, He will seek out those who have been scattered. He will go to any place to rescue us, to gather us home, to feed those of us who are hungry, to lead us, to give rest to the weary, to seek those of us who are lost, to mend those who are injured, to give strength to the weak, and to fight off and protect us from those who threaten to devour us. And God has made good on this promise by sending His own Son into the wreckage under the sun, the good shepherd who knows his own sheep by name, who lays down his life for them, the one shepherd, the one greater than Solomon, has come. Beloved, the memory of Eden has been recovered on behalf of creation. And a new heaven and a new earth now await, and nothing can stop them from coming. So, in verse 12, my son Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much studiness is a weariness of the flesh. So Solomon is telling us, remember, you're going to crave more. You're going to want more. There always will be more. I read somewhere that um, there's over 100,000 books on average published every single year. So you just start to add that up, Right? There are so many opinions and ways and histories and actions of people under the sun and they assault us and confront us. 
with so many different ideas and so many tragedies and so many explanations about life and about God. There are innumerable and conflicting ideas about the purpose of life and the point of everything. And this wearies our flesh, beloved. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. Piling on to what God has already said is sufficient doesn't provide any answers. It doesn't provide any closure. There isn't a path to peace outside of him, no matter how frustrating it may be in him to try to understand the truth. We might be following the Lord, pursuing him with our lives and not reaching any sense of personal peace, which is not make not meant to make us search for it elsewhere, but to remind us that there's something about him that he is for us that we cannot perceive under the sun, but that he is holding us in until we reach him. Just the sheer amount of ideas, the sheer amount of theories and conclusions can make us want to quit believing that anything is true, right? That anything is stable. But amid all these voices, beloved, is the voice of the Lord, of the one shepherd. His are the words that shed light on everything in creation and providence. Remember this. God is not playing games with you. Life is not a quest to find your meaning And your place. God has given these things to us. He's revealed them to us. The the, the essence of life is to understand this no matter who you are or what you're doing. We, We always want more. And God would just have us live right where we are. If God wants you somewhere else, trust me, He'll put you there. He'll put you there. He doesn't just know the names of His sheep. And the words that they need over against the voice of strangers. Beloved, Jesus knows how to lead us in green pastures. He knows where they are. And as the good shepherd, he knows the landscape of the whole world. This is his area. Right? We are the flock that he shepherds. He knows the landscape of the world. He knows where the weather is good. He knows where and what conditions are favorable for our souls. He's the very wisdom of God. So Jesus knows the terrain. He knows about wolves. He knows how to care for the sick animals and birth lambs as a wise man rather than as a fool. He guides us so that we watch our steps across this broken world so that we know as we walk which beams, if you will, of creation and providence and redemption are firmly fixed and won't give way, won't collapse under our feet. This is where he's leading and guiding us. And so the collected sayings that are given to us by one shepherd... And the commandments of God are being given to us together as one. God's word is central to our whole purpose as human beings. Look at 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. I I love that because it reiterates what we've read throughout the text about how there's nothing new under the sun. All that really happens in art, in culture, in in literature and and music and all these things, which again are wonderful gifts. Enjoy those things that God has given. But all that's happening is saying what's always been said in different ways, right? It's it's the longings that have always been heard, just written in different ways. You, You can hear it in the amazing poetry of a man like Francis Thompson. You can hear it in the lyrics of like Coldplay or Ray LaMontagne or something that you, you just, it just carries across it. It, 
there's nothing new. So when Solomon says that, it's not like, well, he didn't know that the earth was going to go on for a thousand, however many more years. It doesn't matter. This is the end of the matter. Everything has been heard. It's here. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Verse 13 puts things in perspective. That after all the considering and applying of his heart to know and to understand, all that has been said has been said. In other words, I know that that things change over time, but if this is the apex of pure humans in wisdom, nobody's going to contemplate the world better than Solomon, other than Jesus. Again, but I'm saying as 100% human beings that, that are not God in human flesh, this is as wise as it gets. Everything has been heard. I don't know of any work in literature, you probably don't either, that better or more honestly and accurately captures the reality of life in this world under the sun than Ecclesiastes. So if this was all we had to navigate, and thank God that it isn't, but if it is all that we had to navigate, I think we'd have what we need. All has been heard. To go beyond that is to go into uninspired territory, which means territory that has no divine authority. So it might be pleasing to my ears. It might make sense. It might put a few of the pieces together for me, but it's not given by the same shepherd. Here is the proper response to life under the sun. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole of man. This is the whole duty or purpose of man. So after all that we've read, we're we're supposed to be afraid of God too. The preachers mentioned like 36 times this God. And never once has he put him forward as a character to be terrified of, to live in horror of, or that from which we have to hide. What he means here to fear God simply means we're resting on his son and his word as front and center in our lives. God steers the ship is what Solomon is saying. It's the proper regard for God that has to govern us under the sun that's been playing throughout this book. And we discern him and his presence. We learn in Ecclesiastes in the midst of both delights and disquiets. He's in both. He's God over and in both. He's there. And so we see him making his word and his purpose stand amid all the difficulties and the mysteries of the changing seasons under the sun. God alone can make straight what is crooked. And beloved, He will. He will. God can and will make straight everything that you and I live and experience today that is crooked. Don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget this. The questions linger under the sun. The whys linger. The what are you doings linger. The where are you's linger. But even these doubts are God's means of drawing us nearer to the truth. They will be answered. God is priming your soul for a new heaven and a new earth. When we encounter and experience things we can't explain, we remember that God has the knowledge of it. God understands it. God can explain it. When we're uncertain of which two paths we're to take in our life or which of two paths 
we're supposed to take in our lives, we remember that the one who fears God will come out from both of them. In Ecclesiastes 7.18. So your life isn't over if you make a wrong step. Alright? Your destiny is not determined by the decisions that you make. They're determined by the God that loves you. Right? Those who fear God, who live this way, come out from both, no matter which path they take. It's not an invitation to choose foolishness. It's an invitation to understand that your God is greater than your decisions. No matter how we or our neighbors are oppressed, we remember that God, our Creator, that God is our Creator and He created every person with dignity. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, all our days and all our deeds are in His hands. In chapter 9, verse 1, God has spoken in this world, beloved. And amid all these voices, amid the nihilists and the cynics and the opportunists and the hedonists and the escapists, we know the word and the commands of God. To fear God is to recognize in all of life that every single thing under the sun has its end in God. And only in God. It feels off the rails today. It is not. It is not. The way is being prepared for the king, beloved. He is coming. The one who does not fear God, how is that shown? They look to other commands, other sayings, other explanations, other ways to tend their lots and their seasons and their circumstances, and they find their purpose in everything but God. That's really what is wicked, to not remember that everything under the sun, including us, has its end in God. That is the recipe for wickedness. To not fear God is, according to Ecclesiastes, to look everywhere else for gain, right? But to those who fear God, the death that is coming for all of us will not have the last word over us. Remember, our spirits will return to the God who made them. Everything wrong will be made right. And, beloved, every wicked thing will be punished and every right thing will find commendation. Do you know why? For Ecclesiastes 12.14 God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the book of Ecclesiastes ends with judgment. But notice this. It's not fire and brimstone. Not here. There's no screaming. There's no red-faced yelling here trying to scare you into fearing God. Right? There's no... You know, obese preacher screaming at you about indulging your flesh too much, right? It's very strange, but that's how judgment normally comes out. It's just fire, brimstone. There's none of that here. It's stated very calmly because it's intended to be good news. Solomon is reminding us here who live in meaninglessness and futility and death under the sun that it's all going back to the God who gave it. There's a trajectory here. He has not forgotten the world. He's not turned his back. He hasn't left us to ourselves. He hasn't left us to our fates. There is a purpose to this world, which means there is a purpose to you and I, even in meaninglessness. 
And it is that we would know Him and follow Him because we will be judged by Him. Yes, but not just me. Everything. Everything. Think about that for a moment. You who long for justice. Why is judgment good news? Well, we'd have to read it in context of everything that's preceded it in this book to understand judgment here. Beloved, God's judgment does not just mean that the perpetrators will be found out. It means that the victims will be defended. It's not just what is bad that's going to be found out in judgment. It's that what is true and right will be revealed and upheld in that day when judgment is finally pure and justice is actually served. All the sinned against moments we've had where the wise and the good were mistreated and the wicked prolonged their lives, all of that will come to an end. All of that will come to an end. There will be a country for old men. There will be. There will no longer be any longing for justice to come. Every secret thing will be revealed. Every secret thing will be revealed. Not only, not only will all the guilty be prosecuted, beloved, but all the upright will be vindicated. That's also coming in judgment. We who have ached under the sun will be given peace, beloved. We've all been the sinner and we've all been sinned against. Every person in this room were mixtures of good and evil. Jesus himself tells us that every secret thing will be revealed, remember? Paul tells us we'll stand before the Lord and all will be brought into judgment. Yes, but to those who fear the Lord. And now we understand the truest expression of fearing the Lord, of adhering to Him and His Word, is to believe in the Son He sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we define fearing the Lord now. This is the work of God. This is what He will accept. This is what will wash our guilt away and credit to us the righteousness we lack. Only the life and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus for us. We would now only fear and terror, fear judgment and terror, if we thought we could keep His commandments, that we could fulfill the whole duty of man. We cannot. To fear God properly is to realize that. To realize that and come running to Jesus for mercy. So, beloved, his judgment need not be feared. It can actually be looked forward to as the moment when finally, after all this time, all this weariness, all this meaninglessness under the sun, that those who have believed will stand before him, washed by the blood of Jesus, dressed in his righteous robes. There will be nothing left hanging in the universe. Either the sins of a person that they've committed had been laid on Christ and God's wrath was poured out for them on him, or because they refuse to fear God and believe in His Son, they will now pay the penalty for their wrongs for all eternity, but not just the guilty will be prosecuted, not will there only be judgment for the guilty and the wicked, there will be judgment for the righteous, and every right thing will be revealed. The truth will be revealed. The truth will be made known. Everything will be set right. Everything. None of the evil or the oppressions are going to have the last word in this universe, beloved. Meaninglessness is not going to have the last word. 
The last sentence of the book tells us that God is going to have the last word. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. That's where it ends. I know it aches under the sun, but God will have the last word. So in a world where, yes, we live under the shadow of death, it's always pursuing us. So are goodness and mercy. So are goodness and mercy. God will have the last word. God will have the last word. Remember verse 12? We'll be tempted to think that we have to move beyond the words of wisdom from God that are given by one shepherd in order to make a difference or to find our purpose and escape this world's chains. So often the words of God through Solomon here or in the entire word of God will seem too small, too insufficient, too quiet of a thing to guide us. But beloved, they are given by one shepherd and he is enough for you. Right? He's enough for you and he's enough for me. We'll be tempted to think we need something more than our relationship with God to have life under the sun or to have purpose or to have meaning. But after all is said and done, the whole purpose of man was simply to fear and obey God. To have done this, to have lived with Him as our ultimate frame of reference, by believing in His Son and having faith in His Word is true, is to have fulfilled your purpose for being alive, beloved. No matter where you live, no matter what you do for a living, no matter how much money you earn, no matter who has hurt you, no matter who you have hurt, no matter who would try to validate you or who invalidates you, you have fulfilled your purpose for being alive by believing in Christ and heeding His Word. We must understand this because we're on a search for something that God has given us fully in His Son. Rest in me, he says. I know it's hard under the sun. I know it's hard to believe that my word is sufficient. But I'll have the last word. So listen to me. Trust in me. The Bible's screaming that at us again and again. It was screaming it to us this morning. Listen to him. These words were given by the same one God transfigured on the mountain, beloved. It's so easy to say. I know that it's so easy to say, but listen, you don't need anyone else to validate you, including yourself. We don't need that. That's a path to destruction, beloved. Think if Christ has validated me, not because of what he saw in me, but because of what he did for me. Imagine how that's meant to shape a life. Right? To not need that from anyone or anything else. Us, us as, as men, men tend to use their careers to validate them, right? That's why when a group of guys get together that don't know each other, what's the first thing they're saying? We talked about this before. So what do you do for a living? That's like, that's a guy's way of saying, so are you important or not? You know? I, I, I mean, ladies, I mean, I don't presume to speak directly into ladies' lives sometimes in specifics because I'm not, I'm not a lady, right? I'm a biological male. I'm a male in every sense of the word, right? So I, I don't... But I mean, the, the, the things that... 
ladies might hear in the world that they might pursue for validation. Beloved, it, this, we're not talking about self-esteem here. And I don't want you to walk away thinking that the, the key, you know, what, what everybody said, you, you can't love other people until you love yourself. Man, that's why the world stinks. Because everybody loves themselves. I mean, we, we, we talked about it so many times. But you ever notice Jesus assumes that? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if, if you loved your neighbor half as much as you loved yourself, you'd fulfill the whole law. Right? I mean, that's, of course, love the Lord your God first with all your heart and soul and mind. But then love your neighbor as yourself. And even the New Testament says, look, to do that is to have fulfilled the entire law. Beloved, that's, life is achieved, value, validation, your purpose. These are not out there somewhere for you to find through your work or through your looks or through who approves of you. Beloved, those things are found in Christ. The means by which we obey His commands, they're found in Him. They're found by resting in Him, believing Him with proper reverence for God. That, that's the whole duty of, that's the whole of man, of human beings. Believe in His Son. Follow His Son. You're good. Doesn't matter what is said about you, not from within or without. God has the last word. God has the last word over you. So no, we can't escape the meaninglessness and futility of life under the sun. But the story doesn't end in verse 13. It ends in verse 14. The end will prove that goodness and mercy had been following you all the days of your life. And that nothing was ever going to be able to snatch us from his hand or separate us from his love. God has the last word. And his word is good.